Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always, and today I'm joined again by my fabulous co-host, Hannah Raffet. Hannah, how's it going? It's good. How are you? Very good. Um, we're here to record the third episode in our series that we're doing on the four standard movements of a symphony. The idea is, of course, to to break down a slot in a symphony that movement in, on, on today's episode will be the third movement and talk about kind of what to expect, what you might hear, the historical tradition, some of the conventions that a composer might be playing with when they write a third movement. Because as we've mentioned on previous episodes in this series, uh, composers are often very intentional about the order of their movements. And so it's not just kind of a random collection of four pieces. It's it's a progression that is somewhat standardized. So we're going to be talking about third movements today. Um, and we kind of prepped a little bit off air, but but uh, in the interest of trying to get a somewhat genuine reaction from you, what's the, what, what, what comes to mind, does, does anything come to mind when you think of third movements, just from your experience? So actually, a third movement that comes to mind most for me is Brahms for the third movement. For me, there's something so lovely and memorable about it that has just stuck with me um, for throughout the years. And it just, it feels, it just sounds like Christmas to me uh-huh. in a sense where like the, the sound world is very golden yeah. to me. And it's just so happy and exciting that I think for me that is what sort of encapsulates third movements for myself I know that there are a variety which you have sort of portrayed to me off mic um, which we're going to talk about today but that is the most forward of third movements to me that comes most most to mind yeah well I think that's a good that's a great example um it's the only movement in his symphonies where Brahms used a triangle, so I understand why it sounds a little bit like Christmas, because it's got like this, and golden, and and what you said, I think, in, in many ways encapsulates what hopefully we'll come to find over the course of this podcast, what third movements started to become. I think they were always kind of light, refreshing palate cleansers before... Uh, the big last movement often but they had this kind of in the beginning just very slightly spirited but what would become a very spirited exciting Christmas-like I kind of like that um, atmosphere Uh, but before we jump to that we're going to listen to what third movements were in the beginning which was something called a minuet Um, Haydn and Mozart wrote minuets for their third movements Haydn wrote 106 and nearly symphonies and nearly all of the symphonies had a minuet, which is this Baroque courtly dance in triple meter. It's kind of like a slow waltz. So to start, let's just listen to a movement of Haydn, uh, one of his minuets that gives you this kind of, it's dance-like, it's a, it feels a little trivial amidst the rest, rest of the movements. It's, the third movement is often the shortest. Um, And so here's a Haydn minuet as an example. Mm -hmm. 
so probably doesn't sound a lot like like Brahms' uh, fourth, third movement, but what's your what's your impressions of that one? It's lovely. I get the palate cleanser that we've been talking about, about the third movement. Um, it's refreshing. And I think, like, assuming... I don't know what the next movement of that piece sounds like, but I'm assuming that it fits it within sort of the the connotation of third movements being like, okay, this is going to help you roll up your sleeves to listen to something really meaty. Yeah. Well, so we'll actually get into that um, when we talk about fourth movements, because uh, just as a little teaser, you know, the third movement, all of these movements underwent some sort of big evolution. And the fourth movement traditionally was in a way meaty in that it was incredibly virtuosic and exciting. But fourth movements also underwent this big development to become massive finales like we know them now. And in the beginning were certainly more meaty than the third movement. Yeah, I don't want to discredit the third movement at all. That's not what I meant by that. But yeah, I understood how it could probably be seen as like, oh, don't even listen to the third movement because, yeah. But I think like as as an experience like experiential listening it's totally worthwhile and that's sort of what the the trick is in composing in my opinion that like it's all preparation for you to sort of understand the whole arc of the piece yeah well this helps sort of like give you like nice brush strokes or like depth and color to the overall piece i think it's yeah and it it comes normally at a, a kind of a point where you want maybe a little bit of a uh, intellectual break, and so it's a nice little um, palate cleanser, as we've called it. So that's great. So in any case, though, third movements evolved from minuets, and they became, really in the hands of Beethoven, uh, something different called a scherzo. And a scherzo, uh, in Italian, it, it refers to something very light and uh you know, effervescent and fast. Um, and so Beethoven and composers after him seem to, in some way, pick up on this kind of lightness element of minuets and, and morphed. But they kind of wanted to make the third movement more substantial in a way, because so many of Haydn's minuets are... Uh, they, they do feel forgettable in a way. They're, they're like, they're so similar to one another. They don't have characters of their own. They're the movement of, of the four movements of a Haydn symphony where it felt like Haydn or Mozart was being the least creative. They were just churning out another minuet because um, many of them sound very similar. And so Beethoven took this to a new level and, and built this scherzo, which is a movement that's much faster, much meatier in a way, much more motion-driven, often much quieter, although not not always by any stretch. Uh, In the case of of Brahms 4, it's like a mix of Mm -hmm. very loud and very soft music. Um, Let's listen to a little bit of of really one of the first true scherzos that, that Beethoven wrote, which was the third movement to his third symphony, the Eroica Symphony, and you'll get you'll get the sense of of the character of a scherzo here. Might need to turn up the volume a little bit because it's it's very quiet at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so thoughts on that one and how it specifically how it compares to the minuet. Oh, it's far busier. They both sort of have, not that they are like inspired from each other, but they both have this airy, airy quality that is quite nice. But it's almost as if like they're both of some countryside. They don't have to be of the same countryside. But, like, Beethoven zoomed in on, like, the nature quality uh, happening there. Interesting. Do you know what I mean? As if, like, he has zoomed in on all the, the bees that you see, yeah. all the birds flying around. Whereas, like, Haydn was just, like, you get the overall landscape. <laughs> that's that's interesting, actually. I, I have never thought of it like that. But, yeah, it's, like, one of those things where you zoom in and you see all the tiny little... Uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, and in many ways it's... Like you said, a kind of intensific- intensification or zooming in uh, of this idea, but but kind of keeping some of the core tenets, namely that airiness, that lightness, and also scherzos often, not always, but especially with Beethoven, preserve this kind of dance-like feel. You know, the minuet was in three. It went one, two, three, one, two, three. This one is going... One two three, one two three, one two three, one two three. Way faster, but it's still that same triple waltz-like character, just on steroids or something, um, and very quiet. And then there's this big outburst of dynamic right after this. So it's it's a real like intensification. Yeah, I mean, how much of it is also? I think this is more of a conversation off mic, but like, how much of that is like a reflection of Beethoven himself? Like, wasn't he very impatient and like just sort of anxious to just change things and, yeah 100 yeah. i mean this is one of the many ways that he was a huge groundbreaker revolutionary in the world of classical music um probably one that most people would get very much pushed to the side most people wouldn't know or or think about because it's not on the highest list of pri- uh, you know things that he just blew up and but yet another one he, mm-hmm. he took the minuet and, and turned it into a scherzo so now I want to actually go through history a little bit, and we'll play a game, uh, Hannah, I want, and, and our listeners can play too, where we'll listen to some pieces, and I want you to tell me whether it's a minuet or a scherzo um, or some sort of hybrid or what you think, which of these two kind of third movement genres these pieces are more resembling. Okay. So we'll go through, listen to some some third movements, and uh, and try this game out. So so here's our first one. So starting off, what do you what do you think for that one? I mean, off the bat, it sounds more regal and more like Haydn esque, but also taking into account like your own classification of the distinction between minuet and scherzo, and that minuet is more like one, two, three. Yeah. That matches for this, so yeah. it's a minuet. Very good. I mean, this is absolutely a minuet. Started off with admittedly one of the easier ones but because this is a straight minuet by Mozart this is uh from his Anna Kleine Nacht music uh fun piece 
probably not everyone knows that there's even a minuet in that piece. They've uh, almost everyone uh, listening to this podcast, whether they know it or not, has heard the first movement of that piece before. Um, one of the most recognizable pieces in classical music. Sing it. Um, I can sing it. Boom, 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 See, I don't have the range to sing the full Anna Kalanonak music. I just am remembering the last time we podcasted and you said, yeah, I got to stop singing. I really got to stop singing. I just got you to sing. But there we go. Uh, it was an incredibly poor rendition of Anna Kalanonak music, but everyone probably recognizes the first movement, but this is the third movement of that. And you are correct, a minuet. So we'll make them a little harder now. So here's our second one, more scherzo or minuet? So how about that one? I mean, it's far busier, which makes me want to say scherzo. But I was also wondering, like, okay, it can't be all tempo that makes a scherzo a scherzo and a minuet a minuet. Not all, but definitely a lot. Okay. Um, And also, I think you picked up on the kind of busyness. So busy. Yeah. This is not, to me, this doesn't have nearly as much of a dance-like feel. Um, And so... I'm guessing you're saying you would go with scherzo. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, this is this is 100% a scherzo. This is actually what violinists, you heard the first violin section playing there, what violinists refer to as the Schumann scherzo. Oh. Um, because this is a famous violin excerpt. Um, it sounds brutal. It's incredibly hard, and this is on almost every violin audition. It turns out that there are four Schumann scherzos. Mm-hmm. Actually, five. There's kind of two in the... Uh, Kind of two in the third symphony, but in any case, this is the Schumann scherzo from the second symphony because violinists always have to play it. Most violinists, honestly, if you ask them, they wouldn't even know that this is from the second symphony. They just would say they just call, oh. Schumann scherzo because they played it a million times for auditions. But it is nonetheless the scherzo, and you know one of the things that you're looking for actually in a violin audition. Funnily enough, also that Beethoven scherzo we played is a common audition excerpt as mm-hmm. well. And the reason is because it's very hard to play with that kind of light, airy, and quick quality and play clean and, you know, no mistakes. Um, and so scherzos are often on auditions. That's Yeah, exactly. Um, good, good, good. So now we're going to keep going and get into maybe a little trickier territory, but here's, here's our next one. And, of course, it's also, you can say a little bit of both or um, just we'll, we'll see what, what your thought is on, on these next few. For me, this is a very interesting one, so I'm curious what you think. It's so tumultuous. 
in the beginning, it sounds so wild that it made me feel scared so, but then there's, the clip includes woodwinds, some sort of woodwinds at the end that has such a minuet quality mm. that I picked up on. Yeah, give me so. It's yeah. more scherzo than mi- minuet, I would say. Yeah, maybe. and give me some, give me some just adjectives to describe this clip. You said wild. Oh, t- a tumultuous as if like you. Um, it's more like okay, if I'm gonna describe a scene yeah. to you, which is what I always yeah. do, but that's just where I go. It's like you are climbing up a cliff frantically, and it is dark outside, uh-huh. and you are freaking scared. But it's like woody and then you reach this nice plane but it's like it's dark outside though yeah. i like that it's dark outside i love the the quote-unquote tempo indication of this um of this movement from Mahler. this is a Mahler scherzo uh it's labeled schattenhaft which means shadowy and it's supposed to be oh, kind nice. of you know it's spooky and it's eerie. so spooky it's almost demonic in a way and yeah, so it's it's a scherzo, like you picked up on. It's very fleet-footed and fast. But interestingly, as I was listening to this clip, I was really, you know, the, the tempo of this one is one, two, three, one, two, three, which is somewhere kind of in the middle. And he's playing this funny metrical game where the timpani is playing very loudly on the third beat. One, two, three, one, two, three. And he's kind of warping, you know, demonizing, creating this kind of like eerie, warped, minuet, scherzo hybrid. Um, and this was kind of the progression of of Mahler's scherzos. Like this quote-unquote scherzo to his first symphony is very minuet-esque. And some of the, the early ones too are very in the minuet tradition. And they become a little more scherzo-like and a little a little darker as you get later. And so this is from his seventh of nine symphonies. Um, it's actually a really interesting thing to do is to just listen to Mahler's scherzo movements. Um, not all of his scherzo movements are the third movements, I'll warn our, our listeners, but it's a really cool thing to watch the minuet kind of transform into the darker for Mahler scherzo. But nice, very good. So here's uh, our next one where we're well into like the 20th century now or, or around the turn of the century. So way past the time of Haydn and Mozart, but can still kind of, and Beethoven, but can, can still pick out some influences. So here's the next one. It's very scenic. Makes me feel a lot like a recall to the Haydn, mm-hmm. um, and that it's very landscape. I was struggling to pin down the like what where the tempo was uh-huh. merely because I'm not a musician and that's just not something that like I'm drawn to unless it's blatantly obvious. Well, let me ask you: Did it feel kind of frantic or calm? Not f- frantic, but wandering, though. Yeah. But still calm. Yeah. I think, yeah, and so as a result, what are you feeling in terms of 
Is there a word for the two of them merged together? I think it's more minuet than scherzo, but like I would love for there to be a word in Costco music where it's like minuet scherzo. Where it's so <laughs> <laughs> like a celebrity name. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can start that. The the muerzo mm. or the sinuet. Um, Ooh, sinuet's better. Sinuet's kind of yeah. nice. It has a sinewy quality. Um, this is good. I mean, this is uh, labeled a minuet, very minuet-esque. This is um, by Ravel, who's a 20th century composer, but it's from this piece, Le Tambeau de Couperin, which is like a, a piece uh, honoring the composer Couperin, who was a Baroque composer, and so it's written in all of these old Baroque forms. And so this is a, a 20th century take on a minuet, um, probably while it, why it feels a little less minuet-esque than the Haydn. Um, it's but, less obvious. Yeah, certainly yeah. less obvious because part of the, the goal in the 20th century uh, with modernism, and this happened all across many arts, was you kind of look back uh, to classical forms in some way or another but you you revamp them or you change them you can't just write a Haydn-esque minuet because that's not doing anything new and modernism is all about doing something new yeah um, it seems as if my impression is that it sort of expands on the original yeah and it, it just like sort of allows for liberties in an artistic for sure way for sure but I think here specifically he's looking primarily at the minuet and, and expanding the kind of creative limitations of that. So, excellent. Now we're going to listen to, uh, I think that was that was maybe four for four. Uh, we're going to listen to two more clips to kind of uh, give away, but show, I, I want to listen to two clips back to back to show something. Uh, we'll, we'll save what it's trying to show until we listen, but here are two short clips from the same movement of a piece. So we'll play them back to back and then we'll react. So we heard two clips there, and I'm curious, they're from the same movement. What are your takes on those two clips? Just the range between the two, and that they're in the same movement. What's the piece? What is the piece? You recognize it. Yeah. You've definitely heard it before. I, I know for a fact that you've been to a live performance of that piece. I'm sh- yeah, if I've recognized it, I have yeah. absolutely been in person live to, to see it. Yep. Why don't you give me reactions to, to the two clips and then I'll tell you what it is. Um, the first one, 
more minuet-esque than the second one, which is more scherzo for me. For sure. For Straight sure. out answer to you. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's exactly what, what we're looking for. The first one, <laughs> the tempo even is boom, 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 one, two, three, mm. one. And the second one in the same movement is yup, up, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. So much faster, almost exactly the same tempos that we heard from our Haydn menuet. Boom, 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 one. Two, three, and from our Beethoven scherzo, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, so this is a movement, a third movement from the composer who was a big, big classicist who really, in all of his pieces, felt like he should honor what was done before, but, um, but clearly in this moment was torn because he wanted to honor both the music of. Haydn and Mozart and of Beethoven, and that is Brahms. Brahms too is my personal favorite of oh, the four. It? Um, it's the first symphony that I saw that I remember that like made a big impression on me. Um, but yeah, and clearly in this in this piece, in this movement, Brahms is is alternating between a very quintessential minuet character and a real scherzando scherzo. That's section. very Brahmsy of of him knowing like the Claire Schumann stuff and like how sentimental. Oh yeah. yeah. And it makes if, sense actually. You know, if you want to hear Brahms, I think we've probably used Brahms already on these and we'll continue to do so because Brahms was a romantic composer late 1800s who was so adherent to the classical forms. Uh, when you listen to a first movement of Brahms, when you listen to a second movement of Brahms, third movement of Brahms, the fourth movement of Brahms, and the whole symphony, they always follow what Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn did, pay homage to them. The fact that, you know, he was very adamant at a time when other people were writing tone poems, whatever, he was writing symphony number one in C minor, four movements, you know, adhering to the form that had been respected, revered for a hundred years. Um, but this is the genius of Brahms in my mind, is that uh, Schoenberg called Brahms the, um, I'm forgetting the quote, uh, the, well, there's an article, Brahms the Progressive by Schumann, mm -hmm. by Schoenberg, which is supposed to be a somewhat inflammatory title in and of itself, because Brahms is thought of as the ultimate not progressive, yeah. almost regressive. Yeah. But I would also say, like, okay, it's not direct imitation, but imitation is a great form of flattery. Yeah. That, that phrase. And that's so, like, what Brahms would say. If it too, ain't broke, why fix it? Like, if Mozart and Beethoven are still in the nomenclature today more so than any other composers, and Brahms probably knew that at the time, obviously, yeah. but like, that's. That stands alone. Well, that opinion. was his attitude 100%. If it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. Because he was very much schooled in, in their compositions, but also kind of adhered to those forms. So uh, that this is part of the reason why... And Mahler is an example of someone who was kind of caught between two, but definitely adhered to some of the traditions that were, were put out. You know, wrote, wrote numbered symphonies and did a little bit with the movement numbers. and But... Um, but yeah, that's why we don't talk so much about Wagner or Liszt or Richard Strauss on these episodes because those people didn't have any interest in writing 
numbered symphonies with four movements. Um, but in any case, that's uh, did a great job. I, I think pretty much got got all of them. Hopefully our listeners uh, were there too. And, and hopefully, I'm curious, just final reactions, if you feel like listening to kind of a, a, a spread of of third movements now, if there's anything that stands out or if you feel like you kind of have a better grasp on those two characters uh, um, that they can take. I mean, more and more, every time you and I talk post, post-pandemic, post even though we're still sort of dredging through COVID, I, it's more. It's reminding more and more how desperate I am to get back to, to see live symphonic works performed um, and how eager I am to just be able to experience all that again. And recalling back to the good times of having attended concerts and sort of the anticipation between movements and knowing, perhaps not knowing exactly what the movement was next, but knowing what you can sort of anticipate next. Like, okay, we just finished the second, we're about to go into the third, and I sort of know what I might be able to expect generally based on my understanding of what yeah. third movements typically are. It's so, that's such a good investment on the concert going experience. Yeah. You get so much more out of it, in my opinion. Well, I would just suggest to our listeners too, I, I totally agree with what you said. And, and uh, this is, you know, this is, the, the, the anticipation can be served by even just playing the game. I wonder if this is going to be a minuet or a scherzo. And if so, and, and if, mm-hmm. and most likely if it's a piece post, 1820, might have elements of both. So let me listen and kind of see which one it sounds more like. Um, and, but yeah, I think w- what you said there, it, it, you know, it highlights to me too, the fact that like, it can be so exciting as a new listener to classical music, like unfor- it, it, it's, it's a different type of meaning. And for me, it's incredibly exciting still. Mm-hmm. But when I go to see a Beethoven symphony, I know exactly what's coming next, you know, which is like, that's exciting too, because there's many things to listen for. How are they going to perform this? Is this going to go well? Whatever. But for someone who's never heard that, there's the anticipation of what's coming next. Like I just heard this and it's an amazing game to play. That's actually what I try to do in a way when I'm determining when I'm trying to accurately evaluate how great a composer is. If you can guess what's about to come next. Yeah. Yeah. If you can guess what's about to come next, actually sometimes... So a good composer, in my mind, you can kind of guess what's going to come next. A bad composer, you can't guess what, what's going to come next because like, it's it, you're just like, that, that, that was lame. Hmm. A great composer... You can't guess what's coming next, but it surprises you. Yes, okay, good, you got there. Because I was about to say, like, oh, I play that same game too, but with, like, pop artists. Like, if if what differentiates the great ones are the ones that sort of go along in ways that you might sort of expect, knowing a thing or two about music, but that they surprise you in a good way. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like... I, it's, Mahler, I think it's universal. Mahler, I think, is the almost the best example of that at every level of listening because as a new listener and as the most experienced listener, you can listen to Mahler and say, how did he come up with that? Yeah. I have no clue, and yet that's incredible. And I think that's the 
best moment in any type of music listening experience and that makes me so just yeah. excited and, and happy to be able to yeah kind of what art's all about right i mean we just we just solved That's it what on it's this, this, for. this yep. podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> well great so that is uh there you go i think hannah said it best hopefully this episode and all of our episodes can help that kind of anticipation before you get to in this case a third movement of of a symphony so I hope you enjoyed listening to these these clips of third movements and gave you a little better sense of, of what to expect. And we will be back soon with our review of the last one on the series, our review of, of fourth and last movements. Thanks so much for joining us, Hannah, as always, and, uh, and thanks to our listeners, too.